Programming Notes episodes, the general concept is that you can get an extended summary of episodes if you decide that you'd rather have that than listen to the episodes themselves, as well as some notes about what's going on in the community or how you can be helpful and useful in the community. In response to some listener feedback, I'm changing up the formats a little bit of the interview episodes. If you want an extended summary of the episode, you can listen to the Sunday weekly summaries and programming notes episodes. And going forward, the episode summaries in front of each episode are going to be considerably shorter. Just some key points uh, about what I might have learned or some interesting highlights from each episode. Programming notes for the week of June 12th, 2022. As just noted, this is the third week of doing the extended summaries only in these programming notes episodes. The reason again for that is that the summaries were often hitting 10 plus minutes for each episode and I got feedback that it was just getting to be too much. This is the last time I'll mention it as it's not mentioned in the episodes themselves this week as well. So we've got two awesome interviews this week, and I decided to give myself a break on the mesh musings for this week. I'll mostly stay off my soapbox uh, in this episode, but please, please, please do start to reach out to people on their data mesh journey and request specific content. And no, it should not be about their technical choices. We need to make it so people can feel like there is a good audience for their content. Nothing is worse than creating something you worked hard on to a reception of crickets. Trust me, I know that. (laughs) So be extremely vocal about what you want to see more content around. I also want to apologize as I really took my eye off the ball. These episodes coming up this week will be the 10th and 11th consecutive interviews featuring male or mask presenting people only. This is completely unacceptable. I am working on it and will do better going forward. Please do let me know who I should interview from underrepresented groups as well. I'm doing my work, but if you have people that I should be talking to, please, please, please put them in front of me. We want this community to be a good representative community and that it's not like a lot of the the ways a lot of other tech communities have gone. Feel free to DM me or connect me to, to people or whatever. I need to do better, but As I said, I can always use some help. Now on to the episodes for this week. On Monday, it'll be episode 88, Data Engineering and Data Engineers' Future in Data Mesh. This is an interview with uh, Joe Reese from Ternary Data. It's a wide-ranging conversation about data engineering and data engineers and a whole lot of other things. But like, what is the future in data mesh around uh, data engineering and data engineers? I will admit, I don't really agree with a lot of Joe's perspective in this, especially when he keeps talking about focusing so much on quick wins with data. I think you need to think about your mid to long-term strategy a lot more and kind of have intentionality around that. But I think it's valuable to see what resonates for you and what doesn't and to have a, a different kind of 
interesting perspective on, on the world of data. On Friday, it'll be episode 89, which is flexibility is your friend in delivering buy-in, but be as rigid as you can, which is an interview with Luca Paganelli from Group O'Hara. Uh, it's another wide-ranging conversation, this time about Group O'Hara's approach to data that is inspired by data mesh, but isn't specifically data mesh. There's a very interesting greenfield situation that they've got. So they're taking the approach of getting domains more in the habit of sharing data rather than trying to enforce a rigid set of rules on what domains share and how and all of that. It has some really good takeaways, and I think it has some really good, interesting things that will help you to ask better questions of, of what approach you should take when you're thinking about your data mesh or data mesh inspired or whatever implementation. So with that, let's go ahead and get to the extended summaries for the week. An extended summary for episode 88, Data Engineering and Data Engineers Future in Data Mesh. In this episode, I interviewed Joe Reese, the CEO and co-founder of the data consultancy Ternary Data. He's co-host of the Monday Morning Data Chat and the author of the upcoming book, Fundamentals of Data Engineering with O'Reilly as well. Joe started by discussing the kind of nebulous area within software engineering and data that data engineering has, has played for quite a while. They sit between the source systems and kind of what is the output of data for data consumers converting the, the data in the source systems into something that's actually consumable for those data users. Previously, that was mostly about making sure reports got pushed through and you hoped people derived some insights from that. Now it's more about pipelines, but the way we store information in source systems, it is not in the format or shape we need for analytical purposes. So there needs to be that go-between. But Joe hopes that data engineering can evolve past kind of managing just those pipelines and, and focus more on the high value. A big trend in data engineering currently for Joe is the abstraction of tooling. Some of that can be good, you know, makes people more productive or bad, means it's harder to understand what is actually happening under the covers. But for Joe, it's probably worth it to use the abstractions as they are able to do a lot of the heavy lifting and data engineers can focus on that higher value work. We might be coming to the end of the kind of quote unquote pipeline monkey era of data engineering. So we can shift more focus to the data output, data ops, orchestration, security, et cetera. I think this is a good point for when people talk about how will data engineers fit in with data mesh. A lot of times they're thinking of them as the people that are babysitting the pipelines. And if we can really abstract away a lot of the tough parts of managing the pipeline and, and make it easier to manage in code, that could be a big win where software engineers can do a lot of the work that is done by data engineering. That's that's just my view on it. But For Joe, the biggest value add the data engineering can have is getting wins quickly, high value wins. When asked about speed to returns versus repeatability, Joe said that the speed is more important, especially when you are trying to prove out the value of your data team. Trust is crucial, so you have to be careful to not move too fast. 
you have to make sure that you're putting out high quality information, but trying to do big bang projects is often a recipe for failure in his view. So I agree with his view about smaller projects. And I think what we've seen is people talking about creating smaller scale data products and adding and iterating to those as more use cases emerge and that people request additional data. You don't want to start by throwing in the kitchen sink of the data. Um, But I don't really agree as much about the speed versus repeatability. I think if we're going to manage data as a product, repeatability, like that this can be a product that I'm going to come back to, that I know that this is going to be here in this format, or I'll have been told that the format is going to change or whatever, that it's actually managed as a product, that that repeatability, at least in the mid to long term for data mesh, is more important than speed, in my view. When asked what could be the signs an organization is ready to implement data mesh, Joe mentioned that if an organization is already seeing wins across with data across a number of teams or domains, that's a very good sign and probably shows that your data maturity is there. But you can't only have a few teams getting those wins. If your data maturity is low for a lot of your teams, you're not ready for data mesh. Fully agree with that. Joe made a really good point about how polarizing data mesh as a concept can be. When he speaks with some organizations, there are a few leaders who simply reject the idea of data mesh outright, call it the stupidest thing they've ever heard of. But many also simply don't see data mesh as ever being possible, specifically in their organization or in most organizations. And that could be true if within their organization, it's a low sharing, low empathy environment. Those organizations need cultural change before trying to implement data mesh, or the implementation likely will fail. Others, including Joe, see data mesh as a bit of a utopian vision. Imagine a world where, and that's honestly pretty common feedback, but Joe made two good points there as well. If data mesh were a really safe concept, it would already be obvious. It wasn't obvious, so these large concepts that that have a lot of change in them cause a lot of concern and friction with folks. People are afraid of change. Human beings are naturally, they see change as adverse naturally. Second point, just because we can't necessarily achieve that ideal, that perfect utopia, we can strive for the goal. You know, are you going to be a good person? right? Being a better person is still a win, even you, if you don't become the best person possible, right? A recurring theme throughout the conversation was the need for speed relative to data. Identifying and then executing on quick wins is crucial for, for data teams in Joe's view. So first, the data teams need to learn how to identify those opportunities so they can build momentum around the data organization as a profit and innovation center instead of a cost center. As Joe said, you have to see problems before you can fix them. I think this is important for data mesh as well. When you're identifying what should be kind of your initial rollout, what domains should you be working with? Yes, it's about what domains are kind of bought in and are willing to do the work, but it's also where are we going to see good wins that have a high chance of success and a good return 
without a ton of investment into them. When working with software engineers to teach them data engineering skill sets, Joe has seen the software engineers are often easily able to pick up a lot of the mechanisms maybe used in data engineering, like managing the pipelines themselves, but they have little understanding of what the data consumers want. So it might be too early for most organizations to have their software engineers as the main data product developers for data mesh just yet. Again, that's Joe's view on it. And Joe regularly sees that software engineers both don't understand data, but also often just don't care to understand data either. It can be easier to teach data analysts and data scientists that data engineering work because they understand what data consumers really need. And so you just have to give them some software engineering skills. Wrapping up, Joe again circled back on the need for high value wins quickly in data. He recommends to not get too complicated. Look for the small wins that have good value, good return on your investment, but also a good time to return, which is your internal rate of return or IRR. You can look that concept up if you'd like. And look at what you want to produce and somewhat work backwards from there to again, find those those high value quick wins. So some key takeaways or some, some key uh, summaries of Joe's point of view here that I had were one, find quick high value wins. Too often people focus on the big wins and those become overly complicated and end up in failure. Two, most software engineers don't understand data well enough to be data product developers in data mesh, at least yet. Again, that one I'm not sure I fully agree with. Number three, data mesh is a polarizing topic, and that makes sense as it is pushing boundaries. Many hope it can come to fruition, but it is a bit of a utopian view. We aren't sure that we really can get there. Four, the future of data engineering is to move past managing pipelines to much higher value work. When we can get there, you know, how soon? Not really clear, but it's starting to move in that direction already. And lastly, speed to achieving wins with data with a clear return on investment and with high trust is the first thing you should focus on. Get this right and you can have the quote unquote luxury of building great data products. So kind of overall relative to data mesh, I think the focus on high value wins is somewhat useful, but if you don't need to prove out the return on investment of going down the data mesh path, the better idea to me is to focus on building up your patterns of reuse. This is something that I'm seeing a lot of people talking about, building towards reuse and that each data product in and of itself doesn't have this tremendous amount of value, that you want to learn how you can create additional data products because the more, the quicker that you can get to creating high value data products, the more value you can drive rather than any one data product being kind of this huge amount of, of value that you unlock. The more you can build uh, frameworks and easy paths for data product development and, and consumption, the better. But in most organizations, you will need to focus on high value wins to prove out data mesh that it can get you that value faster and more easily and regularly than in a lot of other ways that you've tried working. So. It's kind of a luxury if you get to not have to prove out that um, those data mesh via those high value quick wins. 
So if you don't have to, it might not be the best place to focus, but most people aren't going to be able to, to have that luxury. Extended summary for episode number 89, flexibility is your friend in delivering buy-in, but be as rigid as you can. Interview with Luca Paganelli. In this episode, I interviewed Luca Paganelli, who's a data architect at the Italian utility Group O'Hara. Group O'Hara had to develop a sophisticated and reliable way to do their reporting to regulators, but had not focused nearly as much on their internal data and analytics which was being used to drive the company. About two and a half years ago, they developed a new team around data analytics and intelligence automation, or DAIA, to start to rectify that and bring their data and analytics up to the same level as their regulatory reporting. As Luca said, they were ready to scale data governance. I think that's an interesting way to really think about it. One key change per Luca was the business had embraced a digital workplace program. So, you know, the domains were able to create small scale applications to fill gaps where business processes were not yet digitized. While those small scale apps are not scalable in the long run, it still gave people a good idea of the benefits of moving to a more digital or data native approach. Interestingly, the push for a change in Harris data approach came from the CEO and the general head of innovation. The new strategy is not exactly data mesh, but it is inspired by data mesh. Per Luca, the data analytics and intelligence automation, again, the DAIA team, has focused on creating guidelines that help domains understand what good means, but not strict requirements to follow the guidelines. When they first published their framework or guidelines earlier this year, it was not a surprise for the general organization as the DAIA team had been sharing their general thinking for quite a while. And they had kind of created this slow evolution and context sharing instead of a big bang or sudden reorg approach. And that seems to be working well. People were already kind of familiar with where their data manifesto was going to go. before that data manifesto was published. Thus far, the most important aspect of change management around data for Hera, at least in Luca's view, has been not making certain things mandatory for domains. This has meant better conversations where the DAIA team can focus on listening and responding to issues domains have instead of enforcing a rigid set of rules. It's not a combative type of thing, it's cooperative. This has meant the DAIA team can make people feel seen and heard, which gives the, that team a good way to influence the direction of domains. Patience is a crucial part of the DAIA's team's long-term strategy, per Luca. They're helping domains address their current needs, all while constantly re-articulating the overall vision. So those domains really kind of get bathed in that vision constantly. They're also helping by continuing to support active projects so there can be a good transition to new ways of working. And again, the new data strategy manifesto wasn't like a bolt of lightning out of nowhere. The DAIA team had been working with domains to move them towards the manifesto's approach already. So 
it aligned with the domain's way of working when the domain when the manifesto kind of was first published. In Luca's view, they were relatively lucky in that analytics was relatively greenfield at Group O'Hara. It meant that the DAIA team could focus more on heading in the right direction instead of supporting a lot of existing analytical projects. There are certainly some people in the overall organization that are kind of fearing the change and uncertainty, but most seem to be seeing the potential benefits of becoming a data-informed or driven organization. As with most data mesh and general data transformation stories, the challenges that they're seeing are mostly organizational, not technical. Speaking of technical and organizational challenges, Luca mentioned that historically, data ownership was mostly a technical thing and was owned by a centralized IT team. Domains were at most owning high-level concepts and the IT owned the rest. So when they moved to their new data approach or as they started to evolve towards it, domain owners often reacted with fear at first. Once they got over that initial fear, they saw the power that owning their data has to make their data a great resource to the company, both to themselves and to external domains. IT also initially reacted with fear, but started to buy in when they saw how they could empower those business users to really share data in such a powerful way. This process also uh, moved things out of the siloed way of working to kind of cross-functional agile teams. It wasn't, you know, everybody had this very specialized purpose. It was these cross-functional teams to delivering uh, useful information and data. Luca's team has seen a lot of success working with teams to deliver, quote unquote, the right thing, but with a lot of flexibility in how that is achieved. See the previous statements about the guidelines, the vision, the techniques, et cetera, are are in the guidelines, but the DAIA team isn't creating rules to determine how complex a data product should be or anything like that. The current risk or challenge from that is the large variety of quality of data products. But overall, that DAIA team views it as a success, mostly owed to that not being overly rigid. They have created a better socio-technical environment for which they can innovate. You know, I, I express my concerns about this approach, mean, what it means for reuse. First on the data side, if there are a wide variety of data products and quality, you know, are people really trusting them well enough to, to reuse them? And second, about how can we find those reusable patterns which are necessary to scale a data mesh implementation? And I think it's early days for kind of what the team is doing at Group O'Hara, and they're going to, to work towards that in the long run, but they want to create the environment of sharing first. Luca reiterated that the DAIA team is neither IT nor business, so they have to partner with both sides to really get things done. Their strategy is to have the guidelines to make the standardized way the easy pathway, but to not force the domain owners to comply. They partner with them and give the domain owners guidance, but they're only trying to influence them, them to do things the right way. And, you know, what Luca was saying is by laying out the trade-offs in an honest way, you can help the domain owners understand why you recommend a certain approach. And by letting the business people decide and, and really have the final say, those business people are committing more to making their 
data products really work. As for defining data products, Luca mentioned how it has been a struggle internally. This is kind of common. Most Many organizations implementing data mesh are struggling with defining data products. Uh, Luca mentioned specifically, you know, the very high level questions of how big should data products be or how many data products should we have? And, you know, outside of with, with no context around that, there isn't a good answer. And they're still trying to figure out exactly kind of where they want to head with that. You know, should they mirror the source system? In general, this is an anti-pattern or how do they encapsulate the subject matter expertise in the domain into their data products? There's also a chicken and egg issue of needing to understand who from the business should be involved in designing a data product, but they need to design the data product first before knowing who are the subject matter experts in the domain that should help them design that data product. <laughs> That's been a challenge as well. Hera is using two different types of data products, source-aligned and consumer-aligned. Consumer-aligned are designed to serve a specific use case these are kind of the fit for purpose data products. And there is often kind of a working backward process to figure out which domains need to deliver what data once a use case is established. There's also a focus on making sure to limit the scope of a data product, especially like that. So it doesn't get too complex or complicated to create the data product or maintain it. The source aligned data products are typically more general purpose data products. For Luca, data products must serve the domain owner at first, as it is hard to find domains that are willing to be so altru altruistic, they will just create data products simply to share with other teams. This can be a slippery slope, as there are likely many use cases where a data product or even a small part of a source-aligned data product is would not be useful to the data owning domain, but it is extremely useful to other domains. Incentivization in this situation can be very difficult though. So I don't have a perfect answer here, but if the data products have to always first serve the domain owner, that's a concern in my book as to, are you really gonna get the data out there that's the most valuable? Um, and, you know, I think they're focusing a lot more on getting the domain owners kind of happy and comfortable with doing, uh, with sharing their data first before really kind of pressing them for the data that's, that could be the most valuable. When it comes to domain-driven design or DDD for data, when you first start to share the definitions of a domain, many people are creating this extremely complex picture of what a domain is in, in Luca's experience. He recommends trying, just trying your best guess at domains and moving forward, not trying to get overly exact. It's okay to make some initial guesses and work with the domain to define the boundaries as you move forward. He also mentioned that data products that are purely technical solutions won't satisfy the demand for information by the data product owner or by other consumers. So focus on delivering a complete product, not just data but the information of what it is you're sharing. Luca wrapped up with some thoughts about how crucial it is to work on the organizational operating model to try to embrace domain-driven design for data and to be as rigid as the organization can handle in how you're, you're approaching your guidelines, but 
too rigid of guidelines, too rigid of trying to force people into a certain way of working can be seen as like you're a regulator that isn't really adding any value. So start less rigid than you'd probably like. Domains can see the rigid way as, again, creating no value, so they will push back and often deliver nothing. Perfect nothing is still nothing, as Luca said. I've got some uh, interesting points and key takeaways that are kind of a summation of this that are going to be the bottom line up front for the episode, but I didn't want to make this thing, uh, you know, 17, 18 minutes. So uh, I think this is going to be a a very interesting episode that you'll learn a lot from and will really make you think about a a lot of things. So that'll sign off. (laughs) 